welcome to Raw the Podcast with Emma and Amy, where we talk real and raw with mamas who have had to fight and be fierce, who have been thrown curveballs and faced adversity. We discuss everything from premature birth and NICU life to special needs and infant loss. Nothing is off topic. We hope that by opening up and being vulnerable, we can break down the walls and start to remove some of the shame and stigma associated with these traumatic experiences while helping other mamas feel less alone. I'm Emma, a rural living mum to two preemie and medically complex girls, Hazel Earthside and our warrior Willow up in the stars. And I'm Amy, special needs and medical mama to preemie boys James and Jack and a fierce advocate for the preemie and special needs community. We don't share your average mama stories and this isn't your average podcast. Raw is unrefined and breaks through the bullshit of navigating guilt, grief and trauma. I mean, let's be honest, we've been through more shit than some could ever imagine. So at this point, we don't really have a filter. But with this being said, please note, we do talk about sensitive topics in our episodes, which we know can be distressing. We give this warning simply to empower you, our audience, with the knowledge you need to make healthy decisions about how and if you should consume this podcast content. Please take care of yourselves and don't hesitate to ask for help if you need it. And lastly, let us assure you that it's not all bad and sad. Above all, we hope to shine a light on the life-changing perspective and appreciation that only these experiences can give you. We share the overwhelming joys and triumphs that our little miracles, both here and in heaven, bring to our lives. And we discuss the inspiration and hope we have gained from this community. While our experiences are individually unique, we are forever a part of something truly special. A community of fierce mama bears and their cubs navigating the storm. And together we'll roar. Welcome back, Roarers. Yes, I'm rolling with that. I've decided this is what we're calling our little village from now on. Speaking of, we've actually just created a Roar the Podcast listener Facebook group called Roarers, where we can all connect and discuss each episode and what we loved or didn't love and what you might be keen to hear. Someone recently said that the pod was like the mother's group they needed, and we really hope that this group can be somewhat like that too. It's open to all listeners, partners, families, everyone is welcome. Um, So yeah, head over to Facebook and search for us there. Otherwise, the link is in our Instagram bio if you want to head over that way and join us. Emma isn't joining us again this week. She's taking a little mental health break and we'll be back next week to bravely talk about how she's been feeling in the lead up to the anniversary of Willow's passing and her second birthday understandably she's having a tough time and I'm so proud of her for recognizing this and taking some time out we've obviously been speaking quite regularly but I really miss her face here and I look forward to having her back on the pod next week I've actually invited Liv our guest from last week back again for this episode which is super exciting and is obviously very fitting as you all know from our last episode today we are speaking with both Liv's and my own fertility specialist obstetrician and gynecologist Dr Ray Jung Ray is one of, if not the leading fertility specialist in Adelaide with his own clinic, Dr. Ray Jung, obstetrician and gynecologist, and he also works as a senior fertility specialist at Reprimed. Ray manages women through almost all conceivable situations, so from pre-pregnancy problems and infertility to obstetric problems and complex gynecological surgery. He is super experienced and he's won a heap of awards, but above all of that, he is so bloody likeable. I personally know the impact he's had on so many and how he literally changes lives and helps people create families with a huge amount of care and compassion. So it's really exciting to be doing something a bit different today and almost a bit educational. I hope you all learn something new and get a different insight into infertility. I wanted to give quickly give a bit of a background for those that aren't familiar with my story. So I first met Ray back in 2018 
Scott and I had been struggling to conceive for about 18 months. I'd had two unsuccessful surgeries to remove a septum in my uterus. I'd been poorly managed with sort of, I don't know, I just, I call it misinformation and quick fixes such as hormones and ovulation induction that just weren't working. And then we sadly suffered a miscarriage. So basically I'd had a pretty crappy experience with another fertility specialist and I was just seeking a second opinion. So as you can imagine, when I walked um, into Repromed to see Ray, I was absolutely deflated and broken. I didn't know how or if I could keep going. And it was basically our last ditch effort before we gave up. I'll never forget when he called me into his room and the first thing he said was, sorry for keeping you waiting. I was reading your history and I really wanted to understand your story before we talked. And I remember I could have cried. I immediately felt important. And then he said, wow, you are so lucky to have James. And then I could have hugged him. (laughs) And the next thing he actually asked me, um, took me by surprise, he said, what do you want to get out of this? And I instantly knew I'd made the right decision, not only in my choice of getting a second opinion, but also in which doctor I'd chosen. So my answer was, of course, that I wanted to get pregnant, but I also wanted to get to the root of our problems and to treat it appropriately and basically not just throw random hormones my way and hope for the best. He'd done his research, but he also wanted to hear it from my point of view. And then he already had a plan ticking over in his mind. Everything he said made sense and he was already further ahead than my previous specialist really ever had been. Long story short, he performed another investigative surgery to successfully remove the septum in my uterus and at the same time he also did a DNC or a clean out. He flushed my tubes and excised endolesions on my left ovary and parts of my bowel, which funnily, when I say funnily I'm rolling my eyes, but that hadn't even been noted in my previous surgeries. And simply because he listened and he was so freaking good at his job, after a three-month recovery period and a few cycles, I fell pregnant naturally with Jack. There is absolutely no doubt in my mind that getting a second opinion and finding a doctor that I trust and who was willing to get to the root of our problems was imperative to our success. It's really amazing what can happen when endometriosis is properly diagnosed and removed, hey? (laughs) Anyway, let's get into the episode. Welcome Liv and Ray. Thank you so much for joining me. Ray, it's so nice to see you. Um, Yes, no problem. Yeah, it's been a while. It has been. The last time I reckon we saw each other was I bumped into at Women's and Children's Hospital in the corridor. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And then before that, it was when, after Jack was born, when we came to visit. So it's um, been quite a while. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Doing well. Good. Good. And we've got Liv here, um, as we know, who joined us in our last episode. Hi, Liv. Hi, guys. Thank you for coming back. That's okay. My pleasure. (laughs) Um, Ray, can you please tell us about uh, Dr. Ray Young outside of being Dr. Ray Young? So tell us about Ray, about your beautiful family and what you like to do in your probably very limited (laughs) spare time. Everyone thinks that, um, you know, being an obstetrician is... Uh, and gynecologists, you're, you you know, you're always on call and, you know, a lot of midnight uh, call outs. The reality is that th- that does happen, but not too much. Um, mm. I think the hardest part of the job is that you're constantly um, on call. So, you, you, you know, something could, you, you nothing usually happens but it could yeah. happen. <laughs> yeah, there's so always you, that worry. You yeah. kind of have to be available. Yeah, You can never really switch off, can you, I yeah. guess? Um, yes and no. I think you you get used to it. 
that's the first yeah. thing. Um, you have to enjoy it. And then it's less, uh, you think about it less. And I think because I've done this for so long now, it's kind of like part of who I am. And um, mm. I think I wouldn't enjoy it if it was too quiet either. Yeah. Just, you know, yeah. the personality. It's a bit like you, Amy. I can't imagine you not doing the thousand Lovely. things that you do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, footy training. Uh, you know, Add that into the and mix all the now. stuff that you do. Mm. You, yeah, you just you just get used to it. You do it. You don't mm. think too much about it. Um, yeah. And you, you know, we have. I have a very supportive wife and family, and they understand the work that we do. They understand why we're doing it. Um, yeah. And hopefully, they learn lessons from that. You know, hardworking, commitment. Uh, yeah. You know. Uh, a good role model uh, yeah and, and and applying yourself to it so yeah, yeah. because alice your wife works with you doesn't do you she do you... yes yes alice yeah. works with me yes and do you do anything outside of of this like what do you do in your spare time um okay so my week is i have a personal trainer three times a week mm. um to work out and it's so sad that I have to pay someone to make sure that I get to the gym because if not, I honestly would just sleep in. Yep. You make yep. me feel bad about myself. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we're all at different stages, you know. And, and so I, I get to the gym three days a week and Saturdays is a especially early day because we start at 5.30, we go to 7 and then we're off doing whatever. And, and, and you have to do it because... How do you fit it in? Um, and it's good for your mental health too. Oh, it's very good. Yeah. And about 18 months ago now, maybe, um, I started playing Tuesday night tennis with a bunch of boys. So oh, that's, that's fun. good too. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. It's yeah, really lovely. good. So we do that. Um, and then to be honest, the rest of the week, like Wednesdays, I work late because it's clinic day. We often don't finish till six thirty, seven o'clock. Um, Thursdays, as you know, is my operating day, and again, we don't finish till seven, eight o'clock. Um, yeah. And now I work some Saturdays again. So I used to work, then I stopped, then I'm back working again. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's uh, we fill our space up with things. And you've got three daughters, don't you? Um, which probably keep you. I quite, do. I do have busy. three girls. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, they, they do, but you know what's been really good? And and the two of you will appreciate this one day when your kids grow up. <laughs> um, like, you know, you, you get a phase, right, where you are, they're young and they're a little bit tricky in terms of their needs and so forth. And especially perhaps more for you, Amy. But hopefully, you know, they grow out of that. And then they get into a phase where they're really fun. And I think you probably realize that with your older boy now, like at about five years old, they get really fun. And yeah. that really fun stage lasts till about, I'm going to say till the age of 14. And, yep. and, and why 14 is because 14 years old is year nine. And then they start to get into the serious part of schooling. Yeah. And then, you know, you get 10, 11, 12. But the fun thing in year 11 
is your kids get to drive. Yeah. And when your kids get to drive, that's freedom. Yeah. So freedom. Like for the yeah. last few years, Kate's been driving the kids to school. So yeah. the kids go off to school. We don't have to do the morning drop-offs anymore. We don't have to do the pickups. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so Kate's been doing that for us. Oh, that's so, great. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, you go through phases of life. And Ray, in terms of what yes. particularly got you into this field of obstetrics and gynecology and particularly what sparked your interest, I guess, to help people out in their infertility struggles? Okay. So to start, <laughs> I actually ran away from obstetrics and gyne. Mm-hmm. So I remember like um, in med school, we have to arrange an elective in our sixth year, okay? So you usually arrange it yourself. And I thought, oh, you know, what should I do? I'll go do stuff that we don't get taught very well in med school. And one of it's actually ONG because you you only get like a two-month placement in ONG when it's supposed to be this big thing that you're supposed to know. And mm-hmm. so I organized, uh, I think it was four, uh, elective is eight weeks. I arranged four weeks in the local university in Malaysia. And that was an experience. Like, <laughs> you cannot believe the environment yeah. people give birth there. It's not yeah. horrible, but it's not great either. <laughs> the, yeah. the husbands cannot be in the birthing room. Oh, God. They have to wait at the front door. Like, literally, there's a waiting room for them. Oh, my God. And then the, the birthing room is got a curtain um, and two women to a birthing room. Um. And... It's incredible. There's some stuff I, yeah. I'm not going to say because it's yeah. not, not right. I, I yeah. Not it. <laughs> yeah. but, but it was so amazing. It was, it was amazing because eye-opening. Yeah. It's so hard to, to be in, in, uh, in, uh, and in the obstetric ward in Malaysia, it was expected that the medical student was going to do the, the delivery. So it wasn't uh, the, the patient's, just let us be part of their process. And, you know, I'm very thankful for that, you know, because they just let you be a part of the whole thing and they, they never complained about it. So, mm. uh, so I did that. I really enjoyed it. And then the situation in New Zealand is slightly different. Um, there's the, oh, I can't remember now, but they used to have something called a lead maternity caregiver. They call it the LMC. Mm. Uh, and the, and the, it was, I don't know. I kind of looked at an ONG's lifestyle and thought, oh, maybe not for me, you know, too busy, too this, too that. Mm-hmm. Too many midnight wake-ups. <laughs> so then I started, go, Then I so, so I did my surgical training and then I went and did ENT, ear, nose and throat surgery. And I did that for two years, or three actually. Oh, I did not know and, this. <laughs> no, it's part interesting, of the isn't it? rotations <laughs> in ENT we had to do some other stuff. Um, so I ended up also doing some uh, general surgery, vascular surgery. So, and I remember, like in ENT, there's very few emergencies, okay? But I remember that uh, I'm, I'm carrying the, the emergency pager for, for vascular and I get a call on it and it says, you know, emergency, ruptured AAA, which is a ruptured aortic aneurysm coming into mm-hmm. emergency, so I run down to emergency and I go like, it's like the scene on TV. I'm, I'm asking yeah. them how far is the ambulance? And they go like five minutes. 
I call theater up. I go like, emergency, clear a theater. We're coming up in five <laughs> minutes. And literally, the guy gets wheeled in through the door. We run straight up to theater. We put him on the table. The boss takes a knife, cuts him from the chest down to his pelvic bone, oh, and goes straight in and clamps the aorta, holds it shut to stop the bleeding, puts the clamp on it, and then he goes like, okay, let's take a break, and let's just... <laughs> assess what we've got and i'm like and my adrenaline what the hell just happened and i'm going like <laughs> where is the emergencies in ent i episode out of Grey's anatomy <laughs> yeah i know and I, and you know and i i walked away from that going what am i doing you know i'm i'm becoming a person i'm not because mm. i was afraid of the on call or being busy so, and then, um, you know, I'm studying for my part one exams and I'm cramming and I'm, I'm, it's so depressing. If you, the part one exams is horrible. Okay. Mm. The surgical part one exams or used to be horrible. I'm not sure what they are now, but I can't imagine it's that easy. This textbook, I still hope have it. This textbook, mm. last anatomy, <laughs> I had to memorize the whole thing. Like literally mm. the whole book. I had to memorize. That makes me nauseous just thinking yeah. about that. And this is why I'm not doing any more study. Yeah. And I remember sitting down with a buddy of mine and I said to him, I said, I don't know what I'm doing here, man. This is so hard. And he goes like, well, what do you find easy then? I said, ONG. I find ONG easy. Then he goes, then what the hell are you doing this for? I go like, yeah. I don't know. The on-call scares me. And so I ran away from it for a few years. Yeah. And then probably about five years into it, I thought, nah, I'm very unhappy doing this ENT stuff. I'm not getting anywhere. And I thought I better do what I like to do rather than what I think I should do. Yeah. So yep. then, uh, so then that's how I went back to ONG, had to start on the bottom all over again which is fine, you oh, know, really? that's just the way life oh, is. Gosh. Oh, yeah. So mm. I had to take a pay cut. I took a demotion down to the lowest rung. Yeah. But it's fine because like anything. Well, I'm glad you new. did. Yeah, so am and, I. And you have to start <laughs> off. Hazel's <laughs> glad. <laughs> <laughs> and, then, uh, and then we got offered a training position in Adelaide. So then we came to Adelaide, did our specialist training. And then... Through our training, we decided that um, I like laparoscopic surgery. I didn't want to do any sub-specialization because I was already a bit older than the average trainee. Because most of the trainees finish at the age of 32. I was finishing at the age of 36, 37. So I was a bit older already. So I didn't want to spend mm -hmm. more time sub-specializing. So mm -hmm. then I looked around. I said, okay what should I do? And I said, okay, I like infertility, but that's not well taught in our syllabus. So I was mm. very fortunate. I was on some committees with some people who worked at Reprimet. Um, and so I approached them for a job and they gave me a job as a registrar. So in my final year as a registrar, I would work four days at the public hospital and every Friday I was at uh, Reprimet. Yeah. And uh, to, to this day, I'm still at Reprimet. And I, I remember mm. very clearly, I'm finishing up my registrar year and Professor Tremelden is 
he's doing something and then he says to me, oh, what are you doing next year? I go like, oh, I don't know, working here? And then he goes like, <laughs> oh, yeah, you know, well, well we, can, we can talk about it at a board level and see if we want to offer you a job. And then I think a couple of weeks later, he goes like, yep, Ray, we want to offer you a job. And mm. that's where we are. So And it all fell into place. Meant to be. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right, so you obviously manage women and their partners during a very sensitive and difficult time in their lives. And I clearly think you do this so well, as I recommend you to anyone who will listen. And I know that Liv does too. Um, <laughs> um, we talked last week about how there's such a lack of control in infertility, yet it seems to control every aspect of your clients' lives. Um, so how do you show compassion and recognise the burden of infertility when dealing with your own clients? And why do you think this is so important? Infertility is really hard because it's not something that any one of the patients can control, right? It's, well, you don't want it. That's the start, right? Mm. And, and then you're in the middle of a journey where weirdly, no matter how hard you work, it's not going to really make a difference. Mm. <laughs> it, it, it's either going to happen or it's not. And it's either going to take time or it's quick. Mm -hmm. And we're so used to being in a very linear world where, you know, you work hard, you get a promotion, you, you, you know, you, you, you can earn more money if you work harder, mm -hmm. you get more accolades. But in IVF, it's, you can do all the hard work you want. It's still going to come down to chance. Now, it's not always chance. We want to, if possible, put you in the best position to succeed, of course, each time, rather than just say, leave it to chance. So we, you know, we will do things to try and improve it. I think all of it is just, sometimes patients need to vent and you just need to give them space to vent. Um, yeah. And just try and be there, I guess. Um, and I think time is important. Like at reprimand, our appointments are quite um, long, you know, 40 mm. minutes for a new, 30 minutes for a review. Like even mm. today, my last appointment, I told the told reception, I said one hour, she's going to need one hour. Mm. She took an hour, 15 minutes, but hey, you know, it's what she needed. And at the end of it, it still wasn't resolved. But that's okay because, you know, she's had a chance to ask her questions. We've answered it. She's going to go away and think about it. Book another appointment, you know, until she's satisfied yeah. that her questions are answered. And that's the thing you, um, you do, you recognize that as well. And I remember that with my first appointment when I walked in, one of the first things you asked me was, you know, what did I, you wanted my opinion and then you wanted to know what I wanted from this and stuff. And you really took that time to listen to me and to get to know me before putting your professional opinion straight down on the table and stuff. And I think that, yeah, the fact that you you do that, it's very personable. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Do, do you ever feel like, how do you switch off from the pressure, I guess, of having, you know, the weight of people's, not their future, but I guess somewhat, I just, it would be so hard to detach and you would have to, to a certain extent, because otherwise, you know, the stress would just be too much. Like, how do you, how do you go in terms of feeling, I guess, the pressure of all of that? Look, the way I deal with it is I 
I feel honestly that for every patient, I have tried my best. And if I have tried my best, then I can sleep knowing that I've done my best. And therefore, if it works, it works. If it doesn't, we keep going. Yeah, and I think... But that's how I feel. Anyone that's had you as a specialist knows that as well. They, you know, I, I truly feel that whenever anything was done or left in your hands, I always knew that we'd given it our very, very best shot because you had always, for me personally. There's no no unknowns. Yeah, absolutely. You were always so proactive and everything possible was done to give us the best shot, always. And I think we have to because, as you see, then how, I, I, I think I will find it really hard to go to sleep at night knowing there was something I didn't do that could have made a difference for someone. Yeah, you know, yeah. and so I feel, but you know, not everyone feels that way about me. So yes, there are people like yourselves who've had success and are happy, and there will be my patients who are not happy. And I hope, if they're listening, that you know, that I have tried my best. I truly have. Yeah. Now, the fact that I didn't succeed is not the patient's fault. I'm not blaming them. I would never blame yeah. them. Yeah. And I can't blame me either because I feel that I have done my best. Now, maybe I'm not the right person for them. So, but you know, it does come down to, to like you said, there is, there is that element of chance at the end of the day. You can just, you can only do your best and then you're kind of putting it in the universe's hand, aren't you? Like you can't, you can't make that embryo implant. Like it's conception goes a little bit further than science. You, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, some patients come to me and say that, oh, you know, we've heard that you're amazing. You've done all these tasks. And I go like, yeah, but have you talked to the patients who don't like me? You know, and and I said, it's it's good that, you know, I say those things because it helps me, keeps me grounded too, that, yes, I have successes and I have my failures. Everyone does because if, and I say to them, maybe by the time you come to me, you succeed because you have just done that one more cycle but but you need to do whatever you can to help it be more likely to work you know so and that's what I've always felt you know like I've had friends who have been struggling in the same sort of situations who um you know uh might be seeing someone else and they go oh but we're just going to wait one more time and then if this doesn't work we'll do this but we're not going to do this yet because then we'll do this and I'm like no, like, because when, whenever, you, you know, you're in charge, it's like, well, no, why wouldn't we do everything we possibly can to give you the best shot? And I'm just so thankful that that's the approach yeah. you take with your patients because, you know, doing transfer after transfer going, oh, but we'll try this if this one doesn't work and then we'll try this. It's like, well, no, like, I'm going to do what I can do to help you, you know, from the get-go and you leave no stone unturned yeah. with that and that's, huge for me personally anyway (laughs) yeah and I actually had this to like to add in at the end of the episode actually about how um you always actually say that so whenever I kind of lift you up and say that I think you're the best (laughs) you kind of say oh well someone doesn't (laughs) think that and you've always said that and I'm like how does he not know how good he is but then it is that whole yeah you you know you still would encourage people to seek a second opinion if they weren't happy um and I think that is really important in infertility as well. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I don't have all the answers. I would never profess to have all the answers. 
So, you know, and patients need to be comfortable with who they're seeing. You diagnosed me within five minutes and I had been a revolving door through gynecologists, GPs, yeah. um, gastroenterologists for seven, eight years. And you, you, yeah, you, you see, knew but, what I had within five minutes. <laughs> yeah, but that was also because you've also been through the merry-go-round and everything else that they've done hasn't worked. So by the time you saw me, it was almost like there's nothing else to do but to put a scope in you and see what's going on, you know. Mm. And, uh, you know, I have to say your family, live is the, be the best. Your parents, like, honestly, <laughs> they should, I, I have to say, right, I, if I can raise three girls, like your parents have raised the two girls, and they have met incredible men, they've got incredible children, right. uh, grandkids, like, honestly, I'm, I'm your parents have up. done a stand-up job. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, honestly, yeah. your parents have done an amazing job with the two of you. Yeah, thank you. And do you know right. what, Ray? They're going to be listening to this and bloody <laughs> howling. <laughs> I'm sure they will. <laughs> like, yeah, they howling, will. yeah. <laughs> Liv's episode last week, they were, yeah, it was a... It I, was saw, a I heard that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so obviously this leads on perfectly to my next question. You must get quite attached to your clients, um, especially people like Amazing Liv and Jamin. Um, how do you go with those sort of hard conversations that you have to have? So, for example, seeing Liv go through so much over so many many years and then making that phone call after her embryo transfer failed and having that tough discussion about what was to come and almost recommending that maybe it was time for them to just focus on what they have now. I was saying to Liv how it's quite ironic if anyone else even tried to tell you that it's time to sort of stop or to focus on something else that you'd feel like slapping them. But when it's someone like you, it comes across completely different and it actually hits home. Um, and I know that that sort of did hit home for you, Liv. Yeah. I think it comes from a place of Liv knowing that I just want the best for her. That, you know, yeah. over the years, there is a trust. There is, and she knows that I won't recommend something that will be hurting her and the family. So I think, I think we also forget so often that, you know, years ago, I had a surgical mentor. Um, funny enough, he's an Adelaide guy and he was living in Auckland, ENT surgeon, Prof Morton, you know who you are. I don't think he'll be listening to this no. though. <laughs> but, but Prof Morton said to me once that the enemy of good is better. And he's right. Like sometimes we chase after this rainbow and you never get there and you just hurt yourself doing it. And sometimes you just have to accept good. And mm. I think where Liv was, it's like, I, I'm so glad we froze those embryos. Mm. And... You sort of wonder if we didn't hedge our bets with the eggs where we will be. But yeah. she and Jamin were only 12 months together. It's a big call to go and say, mm. put it all, you know. And in only three short years, the quality of her eggs deteriorated so fast. Oh, now, yeah. 
it doesn't mean we can't do more cycles and see if it will work. It doesn't mean that. It just, but she had been on this kind of merry-go-round for a long mm. time. And I just thought that, you know what, take a short break, a break as long as you want. And if you want to go back in again, we can always go back in again. Yeah. But at the time, also, Hazel was still with the, you know, the oxygen oxygen, yeah. and, and all the extra doctor's yeah. appointments and that sort of stuff. Yeah. So, yeah, and she was working. So it wasn't as though, and I think they were moving house as well. So it was all in that, that space, you know. But I, I remember thinking, like, you know, the day that all of this happened and, you know, like, in other facets of your life when you're dealing with medical professionals and whatnot, it can be really hard to, I guess, feel like you have that relationship where you can talk to them when you really need to. And obviously that day was a really hard day for me. And I remember that you did message me straight after. Obviously, as soon as you found out, it didn't work. And I, I thought that in itself was amazing that you took the time out of mm. your day to send me a message. And then the fact that, I mean, goodness knows what you dealt with, you know, what you deal with on a day-to-day basis. But I think you may have been driving home when you gave me that phone call, but I just remember thinking how much, like how amazing you were that, you know, you took the time Mm -hmm. to chat to me. And Mm -hmm. that conversation um, for me was so grounding because you sort of gave me, you know, you really helped me realise what I knew all along that it was okay now if I just wanted to be happy with what I have with with hazel which i wouldn't have had her without you either yeah and it sort of brought me back to a conversation that i had with you um like maybe even pre this second embryo transfer or maybe (laughs) even before any any of this where you sort of said i do feel this like deep deep i guess care for my patients that you know they can go failed cycle after failed cycle after failed cycle and it's something that people can keep doing but at what point do you sort of have that duty of care to step in and touch base and ask them if it's something that they really want to continue doing and personally for me that just shows the sort of specialist you are and I don't think that there's that many people out there like you personally (laughs) oh I don't know I mean I, I tell patients to stop relatively often not a lot but you know I I think at some point Sometimes we need to be very blunt because the patient just needs to hear it like straight. Mm. And sometimes you need to be gentle about it. But, you know, no one talks about stopping as an option. You know, when they say, oh, you've got all these options, you can do this and this and this. But what about stopping? What about doing nothing? That's, That's an option may not be what you want to do but you know you should you you need to hear it as an option yeah uh and then i guess at the end of the day some patients don't listen which is good i had one patient who didn't listen and she got pregnant the next cycle (laughs) (laughs) you know and there you go you go like oh well thank god she didn't listen to me Uh, and and then you get those who don't listen and have failure after failure and then Mm. you go oh well you know stop spending your life savings on this because you know it's yeah you just got to be careful 
Okay, let's start getting into our listener questions and make the most of your extensive and invaluable professional experience. So firstly, when should people seek help if they're struggling to fall pregnant? I know there's this sort of hard and fast rule that you should try naturally for 12 months. Is this what you recommend or is that just a bit of a what you read on the internet? I don't think it's actually a hard and fast rule. It's more recommendation. Uh, And that recommendation comes, (coughs) excuse me, from if you have been trying for 12 months, you have an 80% chance of being pregnant, okay? So that's why they have that Mm, 12-month figure. Yeah, Yeah, that's good to know. However, if you are over the age of 35, asking you to wait 12 months could make you 36, 37 or whatever. Mm. We want to meet the 35 euro and above earlier. So that's kind of six months. Yeah. But really, you can see anyone at any stage. You can come and yeah. see me right off the bat if you want to. It doesn't matter. Yeah. I had a couple who did that, who just got married, comes to see us and says, look, we want a fertility health check. I said, okay, but you just got married. You haven't even started trying. And then mm. they go like, no, we just want to make sure that everything's in order. And so we did the check and it turned out he had no sperm. Oh, really? No oh. sperm. Yeah. And so I was like, huh, well, <laughs> lucky I didn't tell them to just... Go for eat. it for a no, year. Lucky I didn't yeah. ignore them yeah. and tell them to go away for 12 months because yeah. that wouldn't have worked well. Yeah. So, yeah, it's, it's things like that. So basically, I think at any stage, get help. Yeah. 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 Just got to be careful. Yeah. And mm. I, I guess on that note too, in terms of people, if they're struggling to conceive, what sort of steps do you recommend that they first go down i think based on age um the standard stuff is always get your blood test to check your egg reserve yeah check your sperm test see your gp and it doesn't hurt to get specialist advice early um just in case it's something that's you know modifiable or no matter how long you try it wouldn't work kind of a thing so you know i've had patients where you know been trying for a while and then they come and see us and go like oh your egg reserve is really low or your sperm counts are really low so while it wouldn't have been impossible yeah it's just harder yeah and uh at least if they came to see us early we could maybe put like some time frames in place for them and say, okay, you know, try for so many months, come and see us, <clears throat> that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and do you know, Ray, on that note, yeah. I actually um, have a friend of mine and she um, was seeing, had a, had a lapros- laparoscopic surgery for endo and she had asked whether she should have gotten her AMH levels tested and they said, no, 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 you're fine, you're fine. And I said, oh, like it really can't hurt, can it? You know, you're mid-20s, you're, you'll be thinking about children down the track and she was told like, no, nah, you're fine. Anyway, she basically said, no, I would like this test. Long story short, she's got a egg reserve similar to mine and now she's going down the path of what I went down in terms of egg preservation mm. and it just blows my mm. mind that a simple blood test isn't routinely done. 
Like is there is there a time where yeah. you wouldn't do it or am I missing something or is it putting too much anxiety on people's plates or? Depends on the person you deal with, Yeah, I think. Yeah. So I do it as, you know, I, I offer it and if the patient doesn't take it up, it's fine. But it's very rare to find a woman who is thinking of having children and I say, look, you know, you've got this problem. It can cause problems with infertility. I've got this blood test. It costs $100 um, and it could give us, you know, some insight to a potential mm. problem. Um, would you like to do it? Very rare do they say no. Um, mm. I, I, I use it as a tool to see who may or may not have a problem most women's amhs are fine you know yours wasn't yeah. obviously <laughs> um but you know you wouldn't be the only person okay there have been other women who we've picked it up early yeah and you know they i don't know we've managed to freeze some of their eggs as well um so I don't know. I can't explain why more people don't do it. It's not as though no one knows about the blood test. People know about the blood test. So, you know, it's $100, I guess. That's not cheap. Yeah, but people look after their general health and well-being so well. Well, And, like, they go to the doctor and you get a routine blood test to check your general health. But no one thinks about fertility until it's sort of too late, unfortunately. Well, not too late, but, you know, until they're until Oh, it can be too late. Struggling. Like, I told, yeah, my, well, I told my daughters... Yeah. They're all getting an AMH at the age of twenty-five. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I love. I even love the finger wag. Yeah. Um. So, um, a common misconception about infertility is that lifestyle changes can sort of cure infertility problems. And while I'm sure this is beneficial in some cases, there are obviously conditions and situations where the absolute healthiest person or people can suffer from infertility. So is it important for people to try to reduce their stress to eat healthy and exercise? Because I feel like sometimes this focus can take away from underlying conditions and it's actually really hard to make a baby, isn't it? <laughs> well, I think so. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. Look, um, it's, it's good to be healthy, of course. Who doesn't want to be healthy? I know, but the stress that's put on on that in terms of fertility, when sometimes there's a, there's just stuff going on underneath that can't be fixed, like you said. It's like telling someone not Sorry, to be stressed really is just going to make them stress. No, no, no. Telling someone yeah. to be stressed is yeah. they're going to be stressed because you brought it up, and you yeah. know, it's what you say to them is control what you can control, and don't control what you cannot control. You can control mm. your diet. You can control your exercise. And we know exercise makes you feel better about yourself anyway. So that may help you reduce your stress yeah. levels, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> and those sorts of simple things can help rather than it doesn't have to be grand gestures or big things. It could be as simple as taking a walk every evening for half an hour after yeah. you've had your dinner. You know, yeah. it could be as simple as and that. And like you said, it it's, it's giving yourself crazy. the best chance then, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um. So Ray, me and Amy mm -hmm. are not biased at all here, but we think you're obviously <laughs> um, an absolute expert. <laughs> We'd like to say the best in Adelaide when it comes to endometriosis. 
it's a disease where a lot of people suffer in silence and they can go years without a diagnosis and it can be really difficult to, I guess, recognise whether you need to seek, um, you know, a specialist opinion. What are some of, some of the signs and symptoms? Like what should we all be looking out for and what should people do if they feel like they're not being heard? Uh, I think if you're not being heard, you just need to get a second opinion. You just need to find someone who will listen. That's the first thing. Yeah. Don't In terms right. of the signs and symptoms... <laughs> Uh, thank you. <laughs> um, You're so modest. I love endo, it. Um, you get the pain. So pain with periods, pain with intercourse, pain with peeing, pain with pulling, bloating, headaches, fatigue. And I think the other one that's forgotten is infertility. Because y- you get patients who come in and they have no endo symptoms, like zero. And then you say to them, I think you've got endo. And they go, but I don't have the pain. And so then you go, but doesn't mean that you don't have it. It just means you don't have pain. Yeah. You know, and it comes yeah. down to, yeah. and, and okay, so the other side of it is, right, not every person who has endo needs a surgery, okay? Now, it might seem like that. Like patients come to me and they go like, oh, go see Ray and you get surgery. Well, not all the time. Depends on the circumstances, you know. Yeah, you you get a person who's had five IVF cycles, and it's failed, Mm. and they've even used donor eggs and it hasn't worked. Well, doesn't she need a laparoscopy? Because what Mm. else? No one's done anything. What are we missing? Yeah, and then you know, and this patient, we put a scope in, we find all this endo, we tidy it up. And she's pregnant in two months spontaneously. And she's going like, why yeah. didn't anyone look before? I said, well, I don't know. <laughs> I said, but, but yeah. you know, but when you come to me and you've had this history of a bit like Liv, right? You've had this history of seeing all these people and they've done everything else for you. They've done everything that I would do conservatively. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing more conservative to do. There's only an operation to do. So we go down that route and yeah. we see what we find. Yeah. So, yeah. um, and you know, and that was the that would have been the same in my case. I had absolutely zero symptoms of endo, and I would have never have needed it to be excised if it didn't affect my fertility. Like I had no idea until you went in there. Uh, yeah, but you had a problem though. You had <laughs> yeah, I know, that right? septum, yeah. right? Big <laughs> yeah. problem. And we yeah. know people with that have a higher probability of having endo. So you had a high chance based yes. on your history. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and in terms of that, obviously, we're focusing a lot on like, endo at the moment. But what mm. are some other mm. main causes of infertility that you see? Um, what are the main like options of fertility man- management that you offer? Um, you know, including we're talking a lot about us, but I guess there's a lot of um, males that can have some issues as well. Um, Absolutely. You, yeah. You obviously go down the IVF path. <laughs> there's surgeries. There's um, ovulation induction. Um, I mean, there's so many different, yeah, factors. So, well, it depends on the causes. So, broadly speaking, there is uh, one third male, one third female, and one third both in terms of the causes of infertility. So, yeah. if you look at the male, and you break it down to, do they have sperm, or they don't have sperm? 
and then your treatment starts to change based on that. Yeah. Um, if they have sperm, well, if they don't have sperm, that's pretty easy. They, you need a sperm donor. Well, in most cases, there are some stuff you mm -hmm. could do, but it's not great. Lots of guys don't like it. Uh, the success rates are low, but it's possible. So if you have sperm, then why does mm -hmm. sperm calm down, etc., etc. So in terms of treatment options for the male, it's either you can, if they have enough sperm, you can do IVF standard. If the sperm's not enough, you do ICSI, where you inject the sperm into the egg. Um, you can do RUI as well, intrauterine insemination, putting the sperm higher up. Then if it's the female side, then the question is, is she got a good egg reserve? Is she ovulating? Are the tubes working? And then your treatment starts to change based on that. So ovulation induction, as mm. you mentioned, is if they not ovulating properly, then, you know, you, you can help with that. Tablets or injections. If they got a low egg reserve, well, pretty much IVF is going is is what we push them we, we recommend not push but we recommend yeah. um <clears throat> and then endo depends on their age their desire what they want some patients don't want ivf for whatever reason and they want to try something else you could offer them surgery depends if their endo is really bad or mild so the really bad stuff they generally need IVF, whether you combine it with surgery, depends on their circumstances. Um, yeah, so you got to, you have to take the person in front of you, figure out in your conversations with them what their tendencies are. And that's the hard part with our phone consults, because without them face to face, I can't read their facial expressions. And so it's mm. it becomes hard to try and get the you know the non-verbal cues of them and so and body language you, you and so, all of that yeah exactly so you, you you're trying to see as you say certain things you watch their reaction and then you say okay they like that one <laughs> we, we go down that path i was you saying i'm actually like sitting here giggling because i'm, I'm it all makes sense first appointment with you and i'm wondering what did he think of me like i was a bloody mess he's like this girl no, no no i i remember my body language that was just deflated no i remember that visit oh because i thought you know this poor girl is searching for an answer and i don't even mm. know if i have the answer and i don't but I know yeah. where I, what what I wanted yeah. to do to start looking for an answer. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think you just have to take the person in front of you and try and gauge their tendencies and what they're looking for, and then you just go down that path. You know, yeah. if you say something and you get resistance, oh, quickly change tack. Go go this way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think because I'd gotten a diagnosis, like I kind of had gotten a diagnosis. I knew I had a septum by the time I saw you, Ray, but I was just so unhappy with the way it was being managed as well. So um, I just, it was a f breath of fresh air walking in and you actually giving me options rather than sort of being told what to do and what hormones to throw at me. And yeah, yeah, it was just like I'd finally been heard. So 
Well, that's the way I do my consults. I, I, I always say to the patient, my job, if I do it properly, is to educate you on your problem and to present you with mm. the options. I'll tell you what I prefer to do, but you have to pick what you feel is right for you to do. Yeah, yeah. I can't. I can't remember if this was um, with um, my first, just before my first transfer or maybe before my second, but um, there were a few things going on and I think my chances were, you know, slightly decreasing with, you know, time that was passing. And I remember coming into your office a couple of times and you'd say, well, we could do this. And you'd straight away, I didn't even say a word. You're like, no, 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 we're not doing that. You're not ready. (laughs) Yeah, and it all makes sense. And I just remember thinking like, you never were willing to do anything that I wasn't ready for. And you always just sort of managed me through until I was ready. And like, you know, I think it's so important not to, you know, people in, when people are infertile, it can be so easy to go, okay, well, I need to I need to action this and I need to action this now, which can be quite damaging if you're not actually ready. But you just had this ability to know when, obviously by reading my body language now I know, you knew exactly what I wanted <laughs> and when I was ready. And I'm, it was so um, reassuring and nice to have someone go, no, do you know what? Like we're not going to do this because I can tell it's something that you're not ready to go ahead and do. And that the whole summary of what you just said just speaks true to you and how you yeah, practice it's interesting it's like your patients you know um emotions feelings what they need what they want comes before anything oh but know. i read them wrong too yeah but i get them wrong too yeah <laughs> my wife sometimes goes like don't you understand women yeah. i say like no i don't <laughs> I have four at home. I've got two female dogs. I don't know them at all. Yeah. <laughs> I think, no, yeah, you, you're no. just so modest. I think we could lift him up as much as we want with, but he won't accept it, unfortunately. No, no, I think you're right. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So I remember when you first mentioned this to me as well. So you were one of the first um, gynees in Adelaide to offer robot- a robotic-assisted um, lap surgery. Talk us through mm. what this is and why this technolo- technology is so good. So uh, now, robot, how long? I think it was 2015 or 2016 that we started. Um, look, the robot had been around for a while. Um, it was largely in the hands of the urologist at St. Andrew's Hospital. Um, and we had heard a lot of good things coming out of what they were doing for many years. And then Ashford Hospital decided to invest in the robot, which is a very expensive tool. Um, and the moment I heard it, I thought to myself, this is it. I must be at the front of this queue because I knew that this was our future. It absolutely is. So we went to South Korea. I had to go to South Korea to do a course. Uh, I remember it was in the middle of our family holiday. We were in Hong Kong. And there was a space for a day that I could get in the middle of all this craziness. So I said to my wife, I said, Han, can I leave you for 24 hours to go up to Korea to do this course? course? (laughs) So I remember it's the middle of the holiday. Bless Alice. <laughs> I I, I yeah. left at 
uh, I can't remember, sometime in the afternoon, go to the Hong Kong airport, fly up to, to Seoul, check into a hotel, uh, did the course the next day. It's a one-day course. Um, finish it, get signed off, take a train back to Korea airport, fly back to Hong Kong, walk into the apartment we had rented at about midnight, and then do the holiday again after. <laughs> And, no, and, and <laughs> yeah, but you know, it's. I think it was meant to be because if not, I would have to fly from here all the way to Korea. Mm. You know, it's yeah. much shorter from Hong Kong. Um, and it's so the robot essentially is a tool. It's just a tool that the surgeon still controls, so it's not autonomous. Um, and it helps us get deeper into the pelvis, um, better magnification, and it's almost like having your own hand inside the pelvis. So your wrist articulates 270 degrees, okay? So the robot arm inside mimics my wrist movements 270 degrees. So it's easier uh and more accurate it's not for everybody i get patients who come in going like i want a robot i go you don't need the robot <laughs> you just need the, the standard stuff seriously i got the robot <laughs> oh, that's yeah. funny yeah i love that people are requesting the robot <laughs> oh they are because they think it's so much better um look the tool the toy is very expensive so I also mm. don't want to burden the hospital excessively with yeah, uh, cases yeah. that are if you're not needed. Okay, the hospital mm. honestly makes a loss on this when we use the robot. The hospital does. I'm telling you, you, you will not believe it. They actually do. Mm. Okay, but they do it as part of a program that they say, okay, we are a full service hospital and we offer these things, but please don't abuse it. So interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah. So, mm. and as a surgeon, believe it or not, I lose money too when I do this because it takes so much time and I don't charge more for it. So, but yeah. the women who need it, need it. And so we yeah. accept that, you know, there are some women who just need our help and that's just it. You don't have to make money of everybody. Well, I appreciate your help very much. <laughs> <laughs> did Did I get the robot? I don't know. <laughs> No, you got the standard know, stuff. No. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're... It's a scary looking thing. Funny. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I'm sure if I'd seen the robot, I would have known. <laughs> <laughs> Although I, I swear, my memory of that time is so bad. I've got a shocking memory as it is, but I've, I swear I've just you blanked out. You probably blocked it whole... off as well as a, as a, as a time yeah. in your life that wasn't yep. pleasant. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've already sort of touched on egg and embryo preservation earlier but um I'm kind of curious to hear a little bit more about what this involves um obviously Liv you're an expert um <laughs> but when would you recommend this to your clients is it purely when um the AMH levels are low or is there other sort of indications for it okay so egg freezing I recommend it to patients not just when they have a low AMH level I think from memory Liv's level was low, but it was acceptable to watch. And I think she had a second that was also acceptable. 
And then it was the third one which fell. And then I went, now's the time we go. I think, I if think my memory right. serves yeah. me right. Um, and so what I say to patients is one reading, you, you don't act on it because it, it could be falsely low. So we often monitor it maybe six months apart or 12 months apart. And then uh, if it starts to suggest that it's falling, then we would have a discussion about the possibility of freezing. So it's not for everybody. Um, yeah. But there are some groups of women who need it, I suppose. Well, I mean, I wouldn't be a mum without that suggestion ultimately. So that's, you know, that can be what it comes down to, can't it? <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, I use your story with lots of people. De-identified, of course. Yeah. <laughs> but... but I, I say, you know, you have to, people don't think, so I think we grow up thinking, I am woman, I can have babies. Mm. It's not your birthright as a woman to have babies. Mm. You are born with the stuff to have babies but whatever higher power you believe still controls it. Yeah. So, um, and I think that's where women struggle too, because they go, oh, I am woman. Why am I not having babies? What use am I then? Um, and so forth. Yeah. It's a lot of, it's a lot of guilt. Um, cause it is something that you feel should, no one expects to have trouble. And then, you, you feel like it That's should right. be so natural yeah, and so easy. Yeah. And you get taught all through high school about contraception. Yeah. How not yeah. to fall pregnant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How ironic. Yeah. <laughs> Never needed to worry about, about it. About, <laughs> no one talks about fertility and how you could struggle in high school. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, Ray, we have another listener question for you. Um, and this is quite specific. We've tried to leave out the personal details so um, she sure, can sure. remain confidential. She has said, um, our son was born at 27 weeks and passed away after 10 weeks in the NICU. His paediatrician said he possibly has a rare genetic condition called image syndrome and they have sent his bloods to Finland. Our obstetrician said we might need to do IVF with genetic tested embryos for future pregnancies, which was a huge shock as um, we grieve and try to plan how to move forward. I don't know anything about this um, and any information is really limited where I am. So I would really like to know more about what this process involves. So, okay, I'm making some assumptions here. So first assumption is she's in South Australia, which she could be anywhere. Okay, so I don't know. No, she's in New Zealand. Um, New Zealand. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> right. Um, unfortunately, I don't know the... Although I studied there, I, I've left there a long time ago. So I don't know mm. their setup. I cannot imagine it's yep. dissimilar to us here. Um, so yeah. she would have to see the geneticist at whatever children's hospital she's at, National Women's, if it's in yeah. Auckland or whatever. Um, and then... She may or may not need IVF, but it's probably best for her to see an IVF unit and see if 
that genetic condition can be tested because not everything can be tested. So the first part is identifying the gene that's defective. The next part is seeing is if IVF can design a test to test for it. We call that a viability study. That's really so, interesting. I don't know much about mm. this at all either um, or how it, how it happens. Do you do that at Reprimit? Genetically yes. tested embryos or is that a different yes. specialty? Okay. No, yep. we, we do that. So we have a genetics team, yep. which is growing. It's yeah. uh, Genetics is absolutely exploding. And um, so we've got a genetic team, uh, doctors, lab staff who can help with all of this but the genetic testing is the first step yeah yeah i think this was all very fresh fresh news for her yeah yeah Yeah, and she kind of just wanted to know what the process involved so that's helpful thank you um so i have another listener question um this one's a bit close to home and i said we'd touch on it again so she asks, what is the impact of a bicornual uterus on pregnancy? There seems to be a lot of varying information and surgery in New Zealand. Oh, hang on. This listener's in New Zealand. It might not be the previous one. Anyway, um, okay. there seems to be a lot of varying information and surgery in New Zealand doesn't seem to be a thing, but elsewhere it is. Okay, so I want to give a bit of a background here. So I was initially diagnosed with a bicornuate uterus when I was pregnant with James, which is when the uterus wall dips down at the top and creates a heart shape. Correct me if I'm wrong, Ray, but from what I was told, a bicornuate uterus is actually quite common. And during pregnancy, as the baby grows, the indentation at the top of the uterus sort of gets pushed out the way. Um, It was obvious on my ultrasounds with James, my first baby, um, but I was consistently told it wouldn't cause any issues. But then he was born at 30 weeks and I decided to seek a sort of second opinion on this. I had a special scan done which showed that I did actually have a septate uterus or a septum, a fibrous piece of tissue down the middle of the uterus that won't sort of move out the way. Um, in pregnancy. So in my case, it was quite severe from what I was told, almost down to my cervix and essentially separated my uterus into two halves. It's quite hard to detect on ultrasounds. Well, in my case, it looked like my baby in my first pregnancy was just in one uterus because they're obviously looking at this wall around around the baby. Um, And the other half was sort of compressed and wasn't even visible. So that's, I think that's kind of why it can be misdiagnosed but Mm. since sharing my story I've had a lot of people reach out to me and say that they were also misdiagnosed as a bicornuate uterus so do you have much insight onto this like I just feel I know so many people that have come to me and said oh my gosh I thought I had a bicornuate uterus and now (laughs) yeah yeah so um the heart-shaped uterus is called awkward uterus Oh, is it? Okay. And then, okay. I got that wrong already. So, so, that's, the so one. that's the one that's like just a little dimple down and okay. that gets pushed yep. up in pregnancy as the uterus grows. Okay. So by cornu, yep. by, by definition, by is two, cornu is horns. So the uterus is uh, like those, yep. I don't know, like a petal and yeah. it's got a deeper yeah. wall. People need to see uh, what you're drawing. Yeah. 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 This is where and, we need our um, diagrams. Yeah. yeah. This is where a YouTube video would be better. Yeah. 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 And then, um, and so that wall, it depends on your obstetric history. So 
if you were diagnosed with biconwards or arcwards, arcwards we don't do anything because it doesn't do anything. You leave it alone. You cause mm. more trouble than yeah. you help. Biconuit, yeah. we generally leave it until she's either has problems falling pregnant or if she falls pregnant and has problems carrying it to Carrying, term. yeah. Yeah. Okay. So by so, calling it though, can you actually do something? Like can I thought it was the wall of the uterus, so you can't cut away at it, or is that wrong? You can cut away the middle wall, you can't cut the outer wall. When it, yeah, okay. So it's a it's a I'm wall in the middle. Myself. It's like just think about it like your house, your yeah. brick veneer, you don't want to touch that because then that exposes your house. But your internal yeah. walls, if they're not load bearing, yeah. <laughs> you can do stuff to it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So gotcha. yeah. that's where it is. So you don't do anything unless you need right. to do it. And then a, what's a septate uterus then? Is that? So septate and yeah. bicornate almost the same. Almost. Right. Okay. Um, septum is basically just a wall that's coming down. It also describes the external appearance of the uterus. Again, your your listeners cannot see my hand movements, yeah. but it, it, it's yeah. it's just a different configuration on the outside. So that's why when I was initially diagnosed, they had to do a lap surgery. Well, you, did you do a lap surgery and a hysteroscopy at the same time to see the outside of my uterus as well as the inside? I think someone Correct. did. So. You had you had both by both your different gynecologists. Me and the previous person. Yeah. The difference is that I think we took down the septum a little bit better. Yeah. Be careful what you say. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. No, I'm kidding. I'm totally kidding. She won't be listening. Um yeah, so I obviously in in my introduction to this episode, I gave a bit of another more of a background about my um my, my poor previous poor management and seeking a second opinion and my previous unsuccessful mm. surgeries. So as I said, I once again like like Liv, I kind of feel like I owe you. I've I always say to people, Ray got me pregnant, and I was like, hang on, that <laughs> sounds, oh. sounds really dodgy. Really dodgy. <laughs> I know. Look, the 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 thing is, I'm right, so inappropriate. <laughs> Septum surgery is really tricky and that's why not many people like yeah. to do it. It is really tricky. Like I did one the other day yeah. and I had to stop halfway because I couldn't see properly anymore. Because once you start cutting, yeah. there's a lot of debris yeah. and once the debris gets in the yeah. way, you can't see. And once you can't see, you got to stop And you because you could cut stuff that you and get into a lot of trouble. Yeah, yeah. You shouldn't be. Um, yeah. And, and so, and then, you know, we, I, I think I've done it reasonably well, but I can't tell. So I said to the patient, I said, look, I, I know I've done something. I just don't know how much I've done. And so yeah. then I sent her off for a Hycosi, which is basically they the imaging, um, yeah. do an ultrasound scan and they did put that aerated saline in that we can see the cavity. So at least you can compare before and what I've done now and, and how much more we, yeah. we may or may not need to do. Um, yeah. And so I understand the frustration from this person because um, hysteroscopic surgery is a dying art. 
Um, and mm. we do some of it in our training, but we don't do much of it because it's just yeah. not around enough. Um, yeah. So, yeah. All right. We've done the uteruses. Good. Do you still hey? have your... Um, yeah. <laughs> Who'd have them? Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, do you still have your... You're at your cervix mug, Ray. Oh, uh, shall I get it for you? It's in the kitchen. Have you got it there? Yeah, go get it. <laughs> I do. Was that you who <laughs> gave that? Do Did you, you give him it? that mug? Yes. Oh, <laughs> he has it all in, in yeah. his room yeah. every time. I was like, I'm not sure how well he's going to take this, but I hope he loves it. <laughs> <laughs> well, every time I'm in there for a consult, I see it on his desk, so he must love it. <laughs> Oh, that's so great. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm sure in there all the time. Conversation. <laughs> yeah. yeah. See, I got it. Yes. <laughs> so good. I still got my water today. I'll never, <laughs> I'll, I'll never forget how nervous I was taking that to you, not knowing if it was going to be like you were going to just go, who is this girl? Oh, no, I knew you well enough by then. Who is this girl? I love it. Good. So funny. All right. I think. That is all. I think we'll wrap it up there. Thank you so much for joining us. Dr. Y, as I call you. Um, yeah, you've been a um, wealth of knowledge. You are a wealth of knowledge. And I know that lots of our listeners are going to get a lot of, uh, I guess, information and education. And yeah, it's nice to hear you you and Liv actually talking as well. Um, yeah, special. And I've learned something new, which is always good. So Thanks for joining us and I can't wait for our listeners to hear this episode. All right, guys, I'm not going to say too much, but um, I did want to say that Emma will be back next week. We are having a chat, just her and me on the pod, very casual, um, but it will probably be quite vulnerable and raw. Um, Emma's going to talk about where she's been the last couple of weeks and how she's been feeling and obviously opening up about um, her mental health and some things that she's been struggling with which is really super brave of her again um, so yeah sending Emma and the Bone family all our love as always um, I think it'll be good for us to just jump on next week and just talk about life and what's been going on um, I know it's going to be hard for her but I know she's got a lot to teach so many um, and her being open and sharing her story is making such a huge difference, especially for people like me that, you know, all of us really who can learn how to support people through their, through their grief and the, the things that you don't see behind the scenes. And yeah, I'm really, really proud of Emma and I'm actually really looking forward to going back to basics next week and yeah, just having a chat with my friend. So Hope you can join us for that and I really hope you'd enjoy you enjoyed this this episode and we will chat to you soon. Thanks guys for listening. Mm-hmm.